Welcome to Challenging Climate, a podcast where we discuss the science, technology, and politics of climate change. I'm Pete Irvin, a climate scientist. And I'm Jesse Reynolds, an environmental policy expert. Each episode, we bring on a guest with a unique perspective and deep expertise on climate change and put challenging questions to them. In this episode, we spoke with uh, Dr. Britt Ray, who has just written a book, Generation Dread, Finding Purpose in an Age of Climate Crisis, which is about climate change and the mental health impacts of it. She was also a co-author on a recent study that surveyed the extent of eco-anxiety amongst uh, young people. And its results are really shocking. Yeah, in this episode, we discuss the scale of eco-anxiety among young people and the strategies and ways in which they can cope with that anxiety and perhaps channel it towards good ends. Britt turns the tables on us <laughs> at one stage, we flip it around and gets into an interesting discussion of just how worried should we be about climate change, what is appropriate, and how to respond. I think a crux of this conversation that we had is two partnered ideas. One, to what extent are people's ideas in line with the current evidence regarding climate change, or are they unaligned? And two, if they're unaligned, is that necessarily a problem? That's that's sort of the, the heart of the issue that we sort of dance around here in this conversation and eco-anxiety and optimism and pessimism around climate change are manifestations of those central issues. Yeah. Oh, it's really worth listening to this episode because the statistics on youth perceptions of climate change really are shocking and, and the impact it's having on them is real. So yeah, I think this is a really important conversation and it was great to have Brit on to have that conversation. We'll put some links in the show notes to the academic study as well as a news article summarizing it. And now our conversation with Dr. Britt Ray. We're joined by Dr. Britt Ray. She is an author and researcher working at the forefront of climate change and mental health. She is currently a Human and Planetary Health Fellow at Stanford University and the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. She's the author of Generation Dread, Finding Purpose in an Age of Climate Crisis, and a bit longer ago, The Rise of the Necrofauna, The Science, Ethics, and Risks of De-Extinction. We'll be talking mostly about the former book. Britt, thanks for joining us here on Challenging Climate. Hey, well, thanks for having me. Can you tell us a bit about your personal journey, how you ended up from what did you study, for example, at university, and then how did you end up focusing on the intersection of mental health and climate change as a researcher at Stanford? Sure. In my undergraduate degree, I studied biology with a focus on conservation biology and evolutionary ecology. So within those classes, I was learning about the biodiversity crisis, the sixth mass extinction, so to speak, on a daily basis. And I would say that that was the inception point for my relationship to eco-anxiety, although I certainly didn't call it that at the time. I just knew that I cared and was worried about what was happening. And the data was palpably clear as to how dangerous the predicament was. And then as I left that degree and started working as a science communicator, there were some other degrees in between. I went to art school. I did a master's there, focusing on the involvement of artists and designers in this new field of synthetic biology. And then I also did a kind of media diploma getting skills in order to be a practicing science communicator. I went out into the workplace. I produced many a documentary 
radio podcast programs and, and even science TV shows with my home broadcaster, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, and also quite a bit of work with the BBC. And then I found myself doing a PhD in science communication at the University of Copenhagen to combine all of these kind of practical and theoretical interests around SciComm. And that was still having me focus on synthetic biology. I was really passionate about this field and the ethical kind of societal questions that it raises as scientists and engineers try to turn biology into an easy substrate to engineer, which is very hard to do and not necessarily as simple as many of the metaphors of computer coding life would have us believe. And it was when I was wrapping up that PhD that my real professional foray into climate and mental health began. And that's because although I was you know, dealing with climate reports regularly um, for my own journalism and very aware of the lack of effective action, I now found myself with my partner considering whether or not we wanted to try and get pregnant. And while always wanting to have done that, it no longer was this easy decision to be able to move into now that I was at this milestone in my life with the person who I wanted to do that with, given my awareness of how dangerous the climate emergency was becoming. And that birthed this painful dilemma from a moral, ethical standpoint, but also just a question of compassion and wisdom. Is it wise and compassionate to bring a person into the world to deal with climate disruption for the rest of their life? And I didn't know if my thinking was twisted or off base. And I started having all these profoundly emotional responses because of this dilemma. And it became a really intimate kind of severe form of eco anxiety in my own life that I didn't see mirrored by the people around me. I didn't yet have the backing of politicians and celebrities coming out saying that given what we're facing, it is legitimate and valid to ask whether or not it's okay to have kids, which has happened since then. We didn't have the reports and the polls, the statistics to show us how widespread this reproductive hesitancy or anxiety is in our younger generations due to the climate crisis. And I thought, okay, I need to get to the bottom of this. And although it troubled me, I was fascinated by how this eco distress was now showing up in my life. And I thought, well, okay, if, if my relationship to it is, is on this reproductive question, I'm sure there's many other diverse forms of psychological and emotional impact that people are wrestling with. I wonder what they are. And I started to do the research that went into the book that recently came out, Generation Dread. I started with a one-hour radio program about this reproductive anxiety piece, just to scratch the surface and see if there was enough there. To write a book, I realized there was a whole mountain of interesting insights that I needed to dig into. And that became, okay, yep, a multi-year research project to look into the widespread mental health impacts of the climate crisis. And although in the book, I do share my own story, it's much more about the other widespread ways in which this is showing up in people's lives and what coping can look like and how these feelings can be transformed into pro-environmental, pro-social action if we learn how to harness them. Great. Can you define what eco-anxiety or climate anxiety is? Yeah. So I think of it as a grab bag of challenging emotions that a person can experience when confronting the climate and wider ecological crisis. So it includes anxiety, as we hear in the name, but also other often co-occurring feelings like sadness, grief, fear, even a sense of helplessness or powerlessness, sometimes despair, hopelessness. And it's a really wide spectrum that these feelings can land on. It's not that everyone will experience them in a monolithic way. 
you know, for some, the feelings are fleeting and just there as a light touch when reading a headline, for example, or feeling overwhelmed by all the single use plastics in the grocery aisle. And for others, it becomes a real overwhelming sense of terror and extreme anxiety that becomes the main color to their way of life and can really impact their daily functioning. So we know that eco-anxiety can be really constructive and adaptive when it gets a person to really reassess the situation, take notice, think about their role in all this and what they're going to do at at this time in order to band together with others and, and push for societal change. But it can become a real negative mental health impact if it starts disrupting one's ability to eat, concentrate, go to work, go to school, those kinds of things. And we do know that climate anxiety can be linked to things like panic attacks or sleeping problems, even suicidal thinking. So it's really a a large issue that can't be confined to any single definition. However, the American Psychological Association describes it as the chronic fear of environmental doom. So many people have have suffered from anxiety. Do anxious people become eco-anxious or is this a separate phenomenon? So we have some data to show that you do not need a pre-existing anxiety disorder in order to feel eco-anxiety. Obviously, it is logical that if you are a very anxious person, if you have general anxiety disorder, then the climate crisis is going to give you one more thing to worry about, and that can stoke further anxiety. And indeed, that can be found. However, there is no prerequisite for being an anxious person in order to tap into what is now understood as eco-anxiety. And this comes out in a variety of different studies. One in the UK even found that compared to anxiety about COVID, interestingly, that there is a significant difference by which people who had no previous clinical anxiety could indeed get worried in an anxious state about both the climate crisis and the COVID crisis, but would be more pronounced in their anxiety about the climate crisis than the COVID crisis, whereby people who had general anxiety disorder could equally get kind of rattled about both. You were a co-author in a paper, Hickman et al. 2021, I think, that really shocked me in terms of the numbers there. Could, can you give us a sense of the scale of eco-anxiety among young people? Mm-hmm. So my colleagues and I set out to survey 10,000 children and young people between the ages of 16 and 25 in 10 countries around the world, spanning low, middle and high income nations. So we were surveying young people in Nigeria, Philippines, India, Brazil, US, UK, France, some others. And even for those of us who are mired in this research day in, day out, we're alarmed by what we found in terms of the scope and burden of the impact of climate anxiety in these young people's lives. So 45% of the global respondents said that their feelings about the climate crisis are negatively impacting their ability to function on a daily basis. This means play, have fun, be in relationships, eat, concentrate, sleep, basically be an easeful young person. Now, this disrupted functioning was even higher in places like India and Nigeria and the Philippines, places that are lower resource and exposed in a greater way to climate hazards already, which gets at the injustice of, of course, the climate crisis itself, but also its psychological impacts. This becomes a layer cake of distress on top of other social determinants of well-being, including poverty. And so 75% of the global tally said that the future is frightening. 56% said that they feel that humanity is doomed, which is horrifying to think that that many young people are walking around feeling that way. 
And more than 50% said things like what they hold dear in life will be destroyed and that they won't have the same opportunities that their parents had. Now, importantly, we found that these feelings were significantly correlated with young people's sense of being betrayed by governments and lied to by leaders, which gets at this important concept of institutional betrayal. The idea that there is psychological injury that comes with people with less power being dependent upon people with more power to protect them when they see that that protection and responsibility is not being upheld. But there's also then really powerful opportunity to move into what's called in the betrayal trauma literature, institutional courage, opportunities for power holders to step into different modes of acting and being in this issue, which could have a real palpable effect on the distress and emotional well-being of young people. Of course, it's about the big intervention that would help young people's mental health in the climate crisis is climate action. It's not about a more effective therapy or some kind of forest bathing (laughs) experience. It's really about being able to address the root of the problem that is creating the traumatizing effect. So this is widespread, and we see that it's upticking in many different kinds of settings. Of course, we're talking about the Global South and the Global North with disproportionate harm in the Global South and in communities of color, even in the Global North. So the Yale Program of Climate Communication has data to show that in the U.S., for example, Black and Latino communities are more likely to be alarmed by what's going on with the climate crisis than their white counterparts speaking to psychological distress, and they're also more likely to step into a role of agency and action on the matter, perhaps because of their outsized vulnerability to the impacts because of climate injustice. So it gets at some really important findings, and we're just at the beginning of figuring out what this is all doing in people's lives as researchers. You know, research on eco-anxiety is new. The first measure, validated scale for looking at how it shows up in people's lives was created in 2020. So there's a lot of people now working on this and we'll know a lot more, you know, each quarter that passes and more papers that are coming out. But so far, that global climate anxiety study that I was a part of has been the largest snapshot of what this is doing in the lives of young people today. Yeah, I mean, those results are are really shocking. I, I didn't realize that just the scale of that among young people. You said it's it's only just been a subject of research. Is there no no sense of how this has changed over time? I mean, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, I imagine it wasn't similar. So from a psychological standpoint, in terms of having a, a measure by which we understand different components of how climate anxiety kind of shows up in people's lives and what effect it has on their cognitions or thoughts and on their feelings or their affect and then behavior change, it's, it's been recent that researchers have gotten together and really created instruments for being able to measure that. But of course, through other modes of inquiry, this is not something new. No, we, we understand that climate worry and climate concern has been around for a long time and that forms of ecological grief and, and mourning because of what's being lost has been around for hundreds of years, especially when we listen to indigenous communities who talk about the emotional distress experienced from the you know violent effects of colonization, how that's reaped on their relationships to the natural world and cultural traditions bound up in certain ecosystems and relationships with non-human kin, other species that have been threatened through settler colonialism these kinds of things. So it's really a continuum of environmental planetary change, which can really affect the way that people feel that this is embedded within when we talk about the wider literature on something like eco-anxiety and climate grief today. But if we're going to get technical from a psychometric standpoint and the way 
ways that psychologists are thinking about it now, it's really, really recent that, and there are a variety of scales that are popping up and we don't know which one's the best one yet to really get at the construct and measure it with most accuracy. But this is a response in just the last couple of years to how enormous the growth in the public at large has been around these feelings or this experience that many people are reporting to be disrupting their own well-being. And yeah, it's been unfortunately growing very quickly in terms of public interest in the topic because there's quite a bit of suffering out there. Yeah, it's shocking. The 45% having their day-to-day lives affected. Yeah. Do you think that's stable? Do you see that going up another 15, 20% if you did this survey in five years or how, how it was five years ago, 10 years ago? Well, without having the data, it's not fun to really guess. But, you know, the young people have seen increasing climate disruption in recent years in terms of disasters and then the outpouring of urgent messaging on losing our last best hope to act and a code red for humanity and a litany of humanity's failures to protect young people's well-being and every single kind of authoritative organization that we have from the World Bank to the UN and everything in between talking about how we are abjectly failing to uphold our responsibilities to young people by not acting at scale on this crisis. And so they feel betrayed by older generations, I think rightly so, and they feel abandoned. And that is bringing an enormous amount of this distress. It's not just that the environment isn't doing well, right? And that these things are mounting up. It's that they feel they don't have the solidarity that they deserve while understanding that they've inherited this crisis along with unjustly the duty to clean it up. And they are made aware of this often before they have the opportunity to go out and vote and hold any position of power in society and really make change. And instead, they often get messages from older generations that aren't to the tune of, hey, let me stand in in this problem with you and help you figure it out. But more so, I feel hopeful because young people are doing the work (laughs) off putting their hope onto young people, which is a different form of abandonment. So I don't think it was as pronounced five years ago. I think that we've had some major changes, some really key moments, whether that's the 2018 IPCC report outlining the difference between 1.5 and 2 degrees, which really changed people's relationship to this idea of a ticking clock. It was kind of etched into people's minds that we only have 12 years to avert climate catastrophe. And then you see year on year that we're having more record-breaking temperatures and also seeing that emissions are still going up. And that's just horrifying for people. And then there's other kinds of drastic events, such as the rise of Greta Thunberg and other youth activists around the world and Fridays for Future and getting millions of people in the streets and having the Alexandria Ocasio-Cortezes and the Bernie Sanders and the other really adamant kind of climate-focused politicians with their messaging. And, you know, that's a very U.S.-centric way of answering that. But of course, this is echoed in many places around the world, including the empowerment young people are moving in to sue their governments, right, for failing to protect their futures by not taking action um, in all these climate litigation suits that are now unfolding between youth and their nation state. This was not there in the same degree a few years ago. And I think that this is all part of the urgency and the distress, but it's not unfounded. It's valid. And going forward, the big question about how how this will be steady or not is, will there be dramatic, bold, systemic change to address this at the scale that is demanded, that is in line with the science? If our politicians and business leaders and power holders writ large did show that they are rolling up their sleeves and really doing the work, then I think the distress could be at a much more steady level or even start going down. Now, if that doesn't happen, which it looks like it is not happening, the distress will rise. 
as the accumulative effects and consequences of the historical costs of inaction pile up and become evident even more obviously to young people. So it's striking, I agree, but it's really important that we understand the degree to which this is really impairing young people's ability just to enjoy being here at all. And I'm quite horrified at the number of young people who are writing me describing suicidal thoughts over their climate anxiety, which happens because I have a newsletter that deals with topics of mental health and climate. So they find me, but they kind of confess to me sometimes. And I'm very worried about that being a trend that will increase. Quick question, or a pair of questions, I suppose, on the data. We've talked about some of the levels of climate anxiety and differences among racial and ethnic groups. How do the levels of reported climate or eco-anxiety differ, A, by age category? You emphasize the youth. I presume youth have report higher levels of climate anxiety than older people. And B, how do the results differ, if at all, between men and women? Yeah, great question. So there is no data set that I've seen that looks at all generations together and compares them with a systematic way of having done the research so that we can really have a proper comparison. However, we understand from a bunch of qualitative work and from conversations and observations that, yes, it does certainly impact the young in a much greater way than older generations. There are some data not about climate anxiety per se, but about climate concern in general, which shows that older generations are less concerned, less bothered, less alarmed than than younger ones. And this this tracks and is very much um, not surprising if you've been out in the world and talking to people in, in your life and noticing the differences about who is really getting engaged on this. Not to say that there aren't people of every generation who feel extreme climate anxiety, for example, there are and there can be. It's really anyone is susceptible to feeling this distress if they understand the degree to which their own health is tied up with the health of the environment. And then they kind of respond to that in their own unique ways. But when we look to gender differences, the anxiety tends to be more pronounced in females than in males, but not such as to say that it's not significant in males. It is as well. And there is, I think, a lot of interesting work to be done there, but it is it hasn't yet been a huge focus on my work per se. But I have noticed that, for example, in that global climate anxiety study of the 10 countries, that there was a difference with more female response than male. Let's talk about how people manage climate anxiety. First, let's start with the dark side. How do people who experience or at least report climate anxiety respond in unhealthy ways? How does this manifest in harmful ways? You've mentioned thoughts of suicide and uh, you've mentioned considering to not have children. What are other ways that are clearly negative in their manifestation? Well, it can be a real cost to one's well-being if they can no longer sleep well. There have been climate eating disorders that have been reported, whereby a person becomes so focused on trying to winnow away their carbon footprint that they actually start acting as though they shouldn't be here at all in terms of their own consumption, which of course attaches to food, but also clothing and other kinds of personal products that they might be using, or a kind of climate orthorexia, an obsession with eating clean for the environment, so to speak. There have been reports of just general lack of ability to work. I've interviewed people who have found themselves in such a dire form of distress about the climate, they could no longer get out of bed. Just extreme 
depression and detachment and lethargy. So you kind of see the same responses that you would with other forms of anxiety and depression when it gets out of hand and people are pushed way outside of their window of tolerance for, for coping with daily life. And turning to the relatively positive side, what are some of the mechanisms that people who have experienced climate anxiety have learned to cope and perhaps even channel their anxiety into, into more positive directions? Yeah, I mean, a lot of this can be positive and it, it is made a lot easier when a person no longer is sitting in the thoughts and feelings alone, because that makes it a lot harder to cope with them and understand a way through them with creative curiosity. And what's required then is containment. So in psychology speak, this is the idea that any experience in life, even the really difficult ones, can be food for thought and therefore growth and development if they're given the right container to be digested and processed in. And that has to happen in relationship to another person. So it's either just one other person or a group of people who importantly will validate the distress, give it permission, mirror the feelings, and help make a person feel as though they belong in that space, which sounds very simple. However, not necessarily easy to find on this topic because if someone is very distressed and shares these maybe with a circle of family or friends, it can be quite frequent that they will be met with a response that minimizes the distress which leaves a person feeling many times worse and misunderstood and actually goes against the current thinking from mental health professionals that says, no, climate anxiety is not a mental disorder. It is nothing you can find in the DSM or get a diagnosis for. It is a natural, normal, healthy response to a real unfolding civilizational existential threat. So it's your body's evolutionary adaptive quality of, you know, having an anxiety sensor about something that's precious and dear to you that you have to deploy resources around to improve the situation which is what climate anxiety really can do. It can cause people to try and improve the situation, which is super constructive, but it needs to A, find the containment. And I can't tell you how many hundreds of people I've talked to that when they just realize that they're not the only one who cares and is distressed, but when you can connect with others over it, this weight gets lifted. And then you start seeing the ways in which you might be fueling thoughts in a narrow tunnel vision that narratively forecloses the future and is ignoring all the other positive, nourishing, simultaneously true things that are going on. That requires psychoeducation, being aware of the idea that you are actually falling into a larger pattern of human response at this time, and that you are not deviant for thinking this way is really the, the first key. And then people can use it as a kind of navigational tool. It really outlines what's bothering them. It helps them reassess, okay, maybe I can reinvest all this energy I'm losing from being distressed about what's going on into actions that matter at this time. How can I make meaning from my suffering? Yes, I'm a tiny drop, but we all need to be drops in this big sea change, this big tidal wave of change. And that becomes a really empowering journey that many people report their ego anxiety brings them to, but it requires time. It requires processing. It isn't like an overnight immediate thing. And we have to get better at flexible thinking, which is not immediately available often when one is ego anxious. And what I mean by that is that because of the intense amounts of uncertainty that people feel around this crisis, when they're contending with questions of how bad it's going to get and how nations are going to respond and you know how it's going to show up in their own lives, and that of the people they love, the brain really doesn't like uncertainty. It's not easy <laughs> to hold that tension. And also what's very uncomfortable for the brain is, is holding conflicting thoughts or ideas in the mind at the same time. So yes, the fear and the alarm, but also the hope and the courage and the resolve. It, it's much more comfortable to kind of 
split things off into black and white thinking and then commit to one of the two sides of this fence. So one might be kind of thin, naive hope and techno optimism and the idea that someone's coming to save the day and therefore I don't need to worry about it and can relax. Or the other side could be all doom and gloom and hopelessness and despair. And even though it spells out the apocalypse, at least then you can kind of let yourself be at ease because you can rest your feet there on something that sounds certain, which obviously forecloses off many opportunities and can become a bad self-fulfilling prophecy. So the flexible thinking allows for the straddling between the black and white and living in the gray zone. And that requires containment, that requires perspective with others and creative thinking. So many people will report having gone on some kind of journey that requires banding together with others in order to make use of their climate anxiety so that they can get to that point. You've discussed how climate anxiety can catalyze political action, and that strikes me as a both a logical and potentially beneficial outcome in as much as there can be a beneficial outcome of such feelings. Is there evidence or is there, in your opinion, a risk that the type of political action that climate anxiety might catalyze might disproportionately take on a counterproductive, if not harmful direction in the sense of a type of radicalism that bleeds into violence or eco-terrorism or self-immolation? Or in a way, the other extreme or circling around the the so-called political horseshoe into a type of eco-fascism that the ends justify the means in such a crisis. We don't have data to show any of those things, but they're perfectly worth asking. And they're very interesting because we're seeing them as societal developments out there in the world, right? So I think people have been very quick to try and describe uh, the self-immolation of Wynne Bruce to climate grief and despair, which is a, by all means from listening to his community of, of practicing Zen Buddhists, an oversimplification of what he was doing. It wasn't suicide and it wasn't political protest. It was an aspect of long history of tradition of self-immolation within that community, which is more about making a statement of compassion towards, in this case, others in the earth, trying to make a statement that our house, our home is burning. And I'm going to show you that in the deepest way that I can. So it's, I think, too much of a knee-jerk reaction to say that that was the result of climate anxiety or climate grief, for example. And although without having known the man, we will never understand exactly what was going on in his own internal world there. Then when it comes to what you're portraying as unhelpful climate activism, I have not seen any data to point to kind of violence or violent political protest. And I think that would require some qualitative interviewing with many such activists. If you have specific thoughts or examples in mind, I'd love to hear them. And then when it comes to, you know, eco-fascism, we saw just very recently another horrific shooting predominantly of Black people in Buffalo, New York, by a self-proclaimed eco-fascist ascribing to the Great Replacement Theory, who then espouses that there's some kind of organized situation at play whereby white people are being replaced by people of color a strategic plan imposed by elites, so to speak, and that they're going to fight back 
and try and reclaim their rightful place as white supremacists in the world, um, which is obviously totally ridiculous, but also just extremely worrying given that we know we're going to have to contend with climate migration in, in huge amounts of waves never been before and seen in terms of people searching for a better life walking over borders in order to do that by mid-century. So these are predominantly going to be people of color. What does that mean in terms of how the right wing and white supremacy might be dealing with what they will be interpreting as great replacement kind of impacts? It's very scary in terms of stoking violence and conflict on top of what migration already brings in terms of risk for violence and conflict, especially as more people compete over dwindling resources. So yeah, it is another interpretation of climate anxiety, right? As certain people who hold certain values start to feel more stressed about planetary change and what that is doing to our human communities, that they might act out maladaptively on that anxiety by turning to violence. Yes, I believe that that is very true. However, also don't have the data yet on what that means at any kind of population level. Yeah. So this study and your book as well, both really shocked me. I mean, I've been working as a climate scientist for like a dozen years and I just didn't realize the scale of this worry and the depth of feeling as well. It was really shocking. And your book offers some, some very practical advice and is very centered on how to cope with those emotions, how to channel them. But I think my response is quite different to this development. I mean, it feels to me that a section of the public was drifting away from the scientific consensus on how bad climate change is. It seems there's a bit of a disconnect forming. Well, in the UK, for example, 50% of young people thought humanity is doomed and that the things I value most will be destroyed by climate change. I'm pretty sure if you asked climate researchers the same questions, a far smaller fraction would respond in that way. Mm-hmm. Is that your understanding? Is there any survey results comparing public views against climate researchers' views? There are none that I know of, but I've had the same thought that it would be a really powerful piece of work to do in order to get at the bottom of how much of this is based in expert knowledge of what's going on versus how much is this misinformation not intended, but kind of landing through narrative technique in the minds, hearts, and souls of people because of the alarm that is being rung on the issue, which ties back to urgent science. But Perhaps there's this whole middle step in between in terms of the ways that we're fabricating stories and delivering them without the constructive items alongside about empowerment and agency and what is being done. And because without that, we know because due to cognitive psychology, our brains over respond to negative information and it can really easily lead people to this kind of apocalypse fatigue and despair space quite quickly. And when they don't have the tools to otherwise get the information because they're not a climate scientist or they're not professionally engaged with this, then it can really become an oversimplified story that people then ingest as an existential threat that lives with them in their nightmares and and their waking days. I'm not sure. I think it would be really interesting to do that work. At the same time, I do know a number of climate scientists, conservation biologists who are despairing, you know? So it's a tricky one to parse out. (laughs) Yeah. Climate is just an incredibly complicated problem. There's a whole set of expertise about, you know, What does it take to cut emissions? What is the state of the economy around fossil fuels and the transition? There's the understanding of how CO2 changes the climate, which again, is this whole subject on its own. And then the impacts, which again, is a different set of experts. So like there's very few people that sort of are expert on everything. 
I guess we get a lot of our understanding, not from directly understanding climate change or directly experiencing climate change, but through the media that we absorb, our media diet. So I guess social media must be a really big part of how people are forming their views on climate change. How important is people's social media diet to feelings of doom on climate change? Well, it is certainly about the digital diet to an extent that we have to be conscious of how much bad news we're taking in and balance that out with the nourishing good stuff, which social media does not do a good job of for many people, depending on how you follow and where you're looking and getting stuck in these tunnel views of just doom scrolling is very easy. And there's a stickiness to those stories and feeds that just keep people going (laughs) into the night. And it can be obviously an incredibly depressing place to be such that if you just delete some of those apps, if you put some timers on them, you can really see a notice and well-being and emotional benefit. But then the argument is, oh, simply not looking at those articles that are coming about out about the climate crisis is going to make you feel better. Well, do we want to have people not reading about the climate crisis? No, <laughs> but it's about making ourselves wide enough to be able to take in all of the information. It isn't enough to say that this is social media's fault. That's not true. It's also about the data itself, which is alarming to people as it's being construed through climate journalists that are coming out in a wide variety of publications that they then receive in their social media feeds. So it's it's a long kind of pathway of communication, but I think it would be very powerful to kind of look into these wide ranging experts and get their thoughts on it and be able to communicate their feelings and emotional sense too, because I don't know what your experience is, but there are many climate scientists who are not allowed to be in touch with their feelings, right? Like it's not part of the training. It's not part of the professional normalization. There's a lot of concern in science and many fields of science of being judged by your colleagues, right? For not being a good scientist, if you don't uphold X, Y, Z behaviors. And one thing that has been very important is to always speak, of course, from empirical data in an objective way, but to not bring in a whiff of emotion and to not be seen as as an advocate um, and to be able to like protect the neutrality of the findings so that they can go out into the world and have their impact. And that all makes sense. But I've also spoken with climate scientists who say it's now breaking down. I can't keep the feelings at bay any longer because there's too much of a psychological cost of bearing witness to the solutions we have not being deployed. And that is something I need to talk about and grapple with, even though I've I've not been able to do that. I've never been able to talk about that with my colleagues. So like, how is it for you in terms of being on the inside and what you see as the role of emotions in the space of science? That's a good question. I guess I don't get very emotional about it. I see climate change is going to be a real serious threat, but I don't see it pushing out some of the other big problems that we have already. And I think like the worst case scenarios that I think attract most of the media attention now seem quite unlikely. I think maybe it's just my nature. I'm quite optimistic. Something I want to try to slice apart here. Some of the climate anxiety, in as much as anxiety can be warranted, is warranted, that there's a problem out there. And it's at least understandable that people become so concerned about something with so such great risks, but that there's another slice that seems based upon a media self-reinforcing cycle. And I do think that social media is part of it, but not just social media. 
I also see more strident green groups adopt a type of rhetoric that emphasizes improbable worst case scenarios in what seems to me to be an attempt to get more people active. And then I watch this rhetoric get picked up by sympathetic media outlets. And then I get to see the rhetoric adopted by people I know personally. I'm genuinely concerned that well-intentioned political actors are having a measurable, demonstrable, real negative impact on people's well-being, particularly young people. Well, I think that the take many people have moved into is that they would rather sound the alarm on what is unfolding as a potential, even if not likely, and be wrong about it later and suffer the humiliation of that than to have not stepped into their power to do all that they can to protect life, given the systemic patterns of consumption and lack of action in line with the science that we see around us, that they want to do whatever they can to really be part of a movement of protection. And I think that that fuels a lot of what we might talk about as the extreme advocate activism space right now. But also a lot of people do believe that we are currently on track for the worst outcomes who are uptaking uh, that kind of a stance. So what we have to do, unfortunately, as people who are not climate scientists, is completely trust what they're saying because it's so complex and we don't have the skills and the methods by which to analyze the data ourselves and understand and then come to our own conclusions. So we're really at the mercy of how this gets summed up and then shared. But many people are connecting the dots that what is being shared by IPCC reports and other forms of authoritative communication on the climate crisis is in itself terrifying. And they are being moved into acting on those emotions. So I understand your concern. I also can't speak for everyone, but these are the kinds of patterns that I see. And when I listen to you talk, you know, it's it's a lovely kind of story stroke of relief compared to where a lot of the rhetoric is. And I know that there is disagreement among climate scientists about how bad it is. So what can we do to get to a unifying place on this messaging? It doesn't seem like there is a unified message within the climate science community itself. Yeah, I guess I just want to come back to to social media a little. I've been reading a bit about the impact that social media itself has been having on young people's mental health, and it seems pretty bad. I mean, I think there's been a real clear uptick in um, suicide and and attempted suicide, self-harm from like, I think it was 2011, it just kind of the statistics kind of really jump with the rise of the smartphone. And it's very hard or near impossible to get scientists view on this issue like it's always mediated through media through social media i mean you mentioned we have 12 years left which was like the most widely reported result but it was it was a misinterpretation of like one element of what the report said and it was kind of a a, a cranked up version that you know we have 12 years left to avoid climate catastrophe which wasn't true at all it was there's 12 years left until 2030 and by 2030 we need to cut emissions by such and such an amount or we won't be on track to you know, limit warming to one half Celsius. It's not we have 12 years left or we're doomed. Of course. Yeah. And it gave people the wrong idea that there's some kind of cliff that, that we fall over and we're done for rather than being in a march to prevent degrees of warming and that every single action and every degree, every fraction of degree counts. 
Absolutely. And that does have a huge role. It's the storytelling, it's the media, which is the the huge lever there. And I have seen really adamant efforts from the climate science community to try and push back against that and really make clear what is meant by 12 years, right? I think that that has been a wonderful kind of effort on behalf of many, including climate journalists. But does it mean that it reaches everyone after we've had the short, snappy statement of 12 years? Probably not. Wow. I think your book definitely offers some really practical advice for people who are struggling with these emotions and how to cope with this genuine and legitimate worries about climate change. Well, thank you. I mean, in terms of where you want to see climate communication going, I'm curious about what kind of emotional tone you would like it to take. I guess you've got a limited amount of worry or it's, it's pr- probably it's only practical to have so much worry in one's life. And, and I guess I'm, I'm a little concerned that the fraction of young people's worry that's being devoted to, to climate change is maybe a little out of proportion in, in some people. I guess like I want to stress to young people that it's probably not as bad as many of them think, because there really is a lot of this doom laden understanding going around. And I just feel that that is a misrepresentation of where we're going. The action is happening. If it is, it's slow, but it's happening. There will be impacts, but we can adapt to some of them. There will be losses. I think climate communicators have focused a little too much, perhaps, on the climate skeptic side of the debate and have not focused enough on the kind of alarmism that's been developed and this kind of tendency for media to promote those really compelling negative uh, messages. Jesse, what do you think? I think there is a time and a place for looking toward the lower end of the bell curve of distribution. It's an asymmetrical bell curve of expected impacts of climate change. Saying, look, there's a real chance that something bad may happen, like much worse than expected. But it needs to remain grounded in what's the probability as best we understand it? What are the real impacts? How will these be distributed? And climate change itself which I've dedicated my career to understanding and advancing diverse action towards reducing, doesn't seem to me to be the biggest problem the world faces. It might be the most challenging one. I would put things like economic development as a higher priority. Let's, get, let's make poor people less poor. Let's have fewer extreme poor people. That's a higher priority. And if you look at improving people's lives, the margin there is much greater. The good news is, is that's happening. We know how that works, right? Stable institutions, trade, et cetera, et cetera. Reducing risks of nuclear war. That's a tough one. It's an important one. Thinking seriously about the risks of artificial general intelligence is a newer one that's, that's, that is appropriately rising on the radar screen. I do think that climate change is a particularly vexing problem because of the collective action problem where everybody wants action, but nobody wants to be the one taking the lead because it's individually costly. The very challenging distribution of past responsibility for cumulative emissions, which is different than current and future emissions, which are all really quite different than the expected distribution of impacts. This makes it a very difficult situation, but that doesn't mean it's the most important one. And I would think if I was giving advice to a young person who wants to make the world a better place, it depends upon the the particular person's skill set. But um, I'm I'm not sure I would point in the direction of, of focusing on climate change. So 
that that's a bit of a long-winded answer, but to circle it back around to what I think the emotive co- content should be, it varies on the situation, but it needs to be grounded in the best available evidence. And so for a young person, considering that by 2100, there could be a three-degree temperature rise, what do you say to them? Well, what would be the impacts of a three-degree rise? Who would bear the impacts? How can they be reduced through a variety of measures, which include but are not limited to emissions cuts? I would think seriously about adaptation, and adaptation is enabled by economic development. And to the extent that climate risks are disproportionately borne by countries that are near the equator and that are poor, one way to greatly reduce climate impacts on people and on future people is to make those future people less poor. Mm -hmm. So economic development, making poor countries less poor, making the middle class, even making them prosperous, is climate action. And at the margin, that might be where the value is added. But that's a message that we that is very rarely heard in the media, on social media, and certainly not from environmental organizations. Mm-hmm. So I imagine over your career, looking at the past decades of messaging on this, have you noticed a very swift change in the last five years, 10 years, something that feels different than before? that you think is leading to some of the more harmful effects that you're concerned about? Yeah, I'm going to speak for myself. I'm curious what what Pete thinks. I have noticed, and this might be a change in my mind, it might be a change in my media diet, but I've noticed a rise in a type of alarmist rhetoric that is disconnected from the evidence of expected climate change and impacts and disconnected from the low probability, high impact possible futures. Yeah, I feel it's sort of social media, like nuanced, middle of the road, a little of this, a little of that, on the one hand this, on the one hand that. Those messages don't do well. (laughs) It's scientists say all of life will be destroyed by 2030. You know, you want the most extreme negative or the most extreme positive. Those seem to really fly on social media. So I guess I feel there are communicators out there who are who are doing a good job, who are widely recognized and, and, and followed. But it does seem that there's a lot of people pushing some quite extreme views and social media rewards those extreme views. So, so I think that Twitter and social media in general is driving people to the extremes, both among experts and communicators and, and the public. It's pushing us to the extremes. And yeah, I think climate change is, is bad, but I, I don't think it's that bad. Yeah, you're both you're both aligned, I can hear. And I'm just curious what you think about scientists joining Extinction Rebellion and hitting the streets in many cities around the world just recently. Yeah, you can be angry. You know, you can take political action, whether it's uh, something as traditional as voting or something as radical as protests and civil disobedience even is not inconsistent with doing your best to keep your understanding however you go about it. Mm hmm connected to the best assessment we have. Those aren't incompatible at all. This has been an interesting conversation where you've turned the tables a bit and asked us some questions about why we are, relative to others in the climate change space, let's say, not pessimistic. So let me flip flip these questions around back to you. You've written about researched climate anxiety. It's a, it's a dark topic about the possibility of a dark future. 
What gives you optimism in climate change and, or elsewhere? What makes you happy or positive about the future? Well, I've been able to reorient my career so that I'm working on this project, which I was not before. And that has been hugely solidifying for me. So knowing that I'm using my waking hours to band together with other resolved, convicted, talented people who have their eyes open to what can be done to improve the outcomes is hugely, in a robust way, hopeful for me. You know, it's it's allowing me to ease my concerns by devoting the energy that I have to the problem and finding solidarity in that and looking around and seeing how many people are tapped into this and forms of, you know, pro-social, pro-environmental change. All of that is a lot better than being removed from the issue and simply reading about it and getting terrified, you know? And that has really changed my outlook in many ways. And I do discuss that in the book about having left my old career and done the grunt work necessary to be able to come and do a postdoc on climate and mental health and now can participate um, in that kind of professional way. So, so that has just broadened my sense of who's involved, what's being done, and then it brings that deeper meaning and purpose part, which makes things better. But I'm still incredibly concerned about what's going on. I think it's already uh, of huge importance in the in the now in terms of the damages and losses. Like I, I, I don't need to be fretting about the future when people are already bearing the brunt of climate hazard exposures and harms right now that need support. So yeah, I wouldn't say it's like a magical overnight change where I'm now just hopeful about the future, but being able to be constructively working on it does bring a very different emotional orientation to, to what's going on. And I'm no longer rattled in the way that I was, which I document in the book around my on-ramp to ego anxiety. Finding ways to cope, finding ways to work on this brings a, a much bigger sense of, of, I guess, stubborn optimism and just resolve to keep working on it no matter what happens. And then as we do that, then real hope arises because people have their sleeves rolled, rolled up and are working together. Our guest this episode of Challenging Climate has been Dr. Britt Ray of Stanford University. Her recent book is Generation Dread, Finding Purpose in an Age of Climate Crisis. Britt, you mentioned a newsletter. Where can people find your newsletter and plug into that? Oh, thank you. Yes, it's at gendread.substack.com. And it's just there and it's free subscription. Great. We'll put a link in our show notes. Britt, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks. This is very interesting. Well, thanks for listening. Please rate or review us on Apple Podcasts and elsewhere and consider supporting us on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash challengingclimate.